Hi everybody, welcome to The Hard Truth Inside the Football Industry Podcast with me, Philip Heidson and Darren McAnthony, Chairman and Co-Owner of English League One side, Peterborough United. And this week we're going to try and do something a little bit different. We want to do a deep dive on football finances and the health and state of a typical EFL League One and League Two club. So we're going to go down and, and, and drill deep into that a little bit later, but you know, it'd be remiss without talking about the last seven days. <laughs> I think it's a lot, seven days is a long time in football. So um, talk me through it, Dara. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, you know, last week it was like, and this, I apologize to everyone in advance for the rant that's probably going to follow, particularly those on Team Apocalypse who, you know, don't agree with me and probably just tune in to go, what a prick. <laughs> um, but for Team Reality, I mean, yeah, I mean, eight, nine days ago, we're thinking vaccine, home run, rearview mirror. And then these fucking clowns in charge managed to turn that positive into a negative. And the last seven days has been dealing with a COVID breach of the club, this new mutation bollocks, which, you know, very ironically comes out at the same time. They want to basically kill everyone's Christmas. Um, I, I will bet you a thousand pounds by the middle of January that this mutation strain will be not as serious as they first feared and it was overblown and now they're shutting fucking countries down. I mean, they've really shot themselves in the foot because now France, everyone's shutting off to the UK because of this shite they came out with last week. And, you know, this more contagious strain of a virus, which for me, I just think they've the hype and inflated this up to frighten everyone indoors and to basically hammer through the new tier four structure. So, so come Thursday, anyway, I get the call that one of our players is, you know, has a positive test. The issue being the player was, around 25 of our players in a small dressing room on Tuesday night. Mm -hmm. On Thursday, when he got the positive, he was sat in a meeting room with another 20 players and staff in a closed room at the training ground, as you do for going through video footage and everything else. So I get the phone call. We're then on to the EFL doctors. Then obviously we make a decision, right, get everyone out of there, send them home. And Friday then, you know, multiple people are coming down with symptoms, even though there wasn't a massive amount of positive tests. Mm -hmm. Again, you could test on Saturday before the game. And like what happened with Sunderland, they were forced to play the game. And then afterwards, I think another eight, nine came down. So our biggest concern was, it's not necessarily about the players, because we know they're all young and healthy. And a lot of them are asymptomatic. They don't feel it or whatever else. But it's Christmas coming up. And a lot of these players could be around. This was before the tier four nonsense. Mm -hmm. Could be around older people and and their parents and maybe grandparents, because people are human beings. They're going to probably still see some relatives, even though maybe they shouldn't, but they're going to. So our concern was, yeah, I never want to miss a football game. And Christmas football for me is a sacrilege. It's 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 everything about why I own a football club. And I'm here. I want to watch football and Boxing Day and three four games and quickly. Listen, I love Christmas football. Mm -hmm. So we spoke to the AFL doctor. We gave him the run through, and the you know the advice was: look, you're doing the right thing. You need to shut it down. So I'm speaking to the disco on Thursday, Friday. And obviously then Friday, we knew things were going into tier three. It was the last day to go out with the kids and we got to see a movie. So I took the kids to Wonder Woman. But I was just a beaten dog by the time I got to the cinema, you know, with the news that we were going to have to shut it all down. Uh, and there are still people with, you know, symptoms going on. And, you know, mm -hmm. but fair play to the AFL doctors that we spoke to and the advice we took and everything. And it is what it is. And hopefully, you know, in saying that now, none of these people can spend time with their family at Christmas anyway, now at the new tiers, but at the time we thought they might. So we thought, okay, this might save lives in case someone's around a 70-year-old grandmother or an older parent. Some of the players have got older parents, you know. Obviously, a few people were like, oh, Peterborough, you should play your youth team. The problem we had was, and I'm happy to play my youth team, five of our first team are youth teamers who train with the youth team. Mm -hmm. So they've been around it, then they train with the youth team, and we've had to shut them down as well, and they can't play their FA Cup youth game. 
So it wasn't even that we could just play it to you team. <laughs> you know, there was it, it was a case the whole of club shuts down basically. Yeah, yeah, and and it's just and just after again we got shut down on crowds last week. You know, again, you know we had crowds back for one game. They shut that down. Every little bit of hope and optimism is just fucking crushed. And uh, mm-hmm. that was Thursday, Friday, and then obviously Saturday. That fucking those clowns in charge with their mutated variant, whatever else, then just destroy Christmas for fucking millions of people. There were people who had travel plans. There were people who, and I know these people who purposely lived in a bubble for two weeks mm-hmm. leading up to Christmas to spend time with an older relative or an older person. And they're the people you don't want to affect. But if you follow the advice and you did two and a half weeks yeah. in a bubble. You know, you could safely have a nice Christmas with them, and that was taken away by Boris and his fucking cohorts of fucking clowns that he works with in government. And um, I don't give a fuck if it's Labour or Conservative. I think they're all as useless as each other, and they haven't a fucking clue. And then I'm thinking, all those restaurants for Christmas, the hotels for Christmas, who were thrown guests out probably because they're not allowed to stay open. And um, the only thing that was allowed to stay open was retail and shopping until Saturday night. Tier four said no. The only thing you can buy is essential uh, supermarket stuff, as someone else deems essential. Yeah, and then I'm told in some supermarkets the toy areas are all zoned off. I mean, what the fuck society? I said to my yeah. two girls, I said to my kids today, it's my wife's birthday. I said to my girls today, I said, can you imagine living in a society where your mom can't see her brother or sister? My wife lives 10 miles from her sister here. She hasn't seen her in 15 months. She lives 40 miles for her brother, who lives in Tier 2 Bristol. And they were meant to come up for um, her birthday or Boxing Day as well. And none of us, them included, really interact with anyone over the age of 60. So, again, like being in a bubble of whatever they want to fucking call it, it was quite safe for my wife to have a cup of tea with her brother and sister that she hasn't seen. But we're in a society where my wife can't see her brother or sister. So I said to my wife, look, tell your brother he's in Bristol and here too. I'll fucking drive her down there. And I said, I'll pay the, I'll pay the fucking fine. I'll give a fuck. Government overreached and fucking haul me off for all I care. So I said to her, look, we'll start the car up on Boxing Den. I'll drive you down. And you can see your brother. Her mom and dad are buried in Bristol. I said, I'll mm-hmm. take you to the grave. You can put some flowers. Um, and you can see your brother. Because that was the idea of seeing her. Her, her dad died last year and her mom died the year before. So and they're buried in Bristol. So we were going to visit the grave. But we're not allowed to leave our tier four area because we're living in a fucking dictatorship with these fucking morons in charge. And our brother was like, no, I don't want you to get in trouble. And obviously, you know, um, so we didn't do that. But me personally, I'd be like, fucking hoo-ha. Mm-hmm. I'd get my Merc out and fucking leave the Ranger over at home and I'd do 100 miles an hour down there. It'd be like a scene of Thelma and Louise with a bloke <laughs> and a girl instead. So, uh, you, you, you know, and, and and to be fair, you know, if it were me and I had loads of extended family and whatever and I'd done the bubble for two, I'd still, I, 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 and I'm not encouraging anyone, this is me personally, I'd break the fucking rules. Fuck all these clowns. You're not going to see me seeing my mum and dad. If I'd spent the last two and a half weeks staying healthy and away mm. from the virus to see see my older parents who maybe maybe I don't have any Christmases left. You're not going to stop me seeing them. I'd fucking do everything I could. I'd pay and hire an SAS crew to go and fucking take them to me if I had to. And, and it was really funny because I'm on my driveway here where I live here in Weybridge and uh, my next door neighbor is a lovely old lady. I hadn't seen her for months mm-hmm. and she's on her driveway. So she's about, and before everyone starts freaking out, she's like 50 yards away from me. Margaret, her name is. So she comes down to talk to me and I'm like telling her to back up. Because again, I'm th- even though people think I'm a COVID lunatic, I'm always so respectful of anyone of an age group. I stay the fuck away from them. So I said, Margaret, how are you, darling? And she's like, well, I'm, I'm you know, I'm good. Her son basically lives in Woking. And I said, you know, are you going to your son for Christmas Day? And she goes, well, that was the plan, but, you know, I'm not allowed to now. And she's 86. Mm-hmm. And she said, Darry, you know, I don't know how many Christmases I've got left. And, you know, if I've only got four Christmases left, 
they're taking this one away from me. And her son had basically done all the bubble stuff and made sure it was safe mm-hmm. for his mom to come around. And I said, look, Barbara, I said, um, you know, I'll drop your Christmas dinner around. You know, you're on your own on Christmas Day. She's 86 and she's on her mm-hmm. fucking own on Christmas Day. And then you got people who are, you know, are getting criticized for crowding all the trains in London and everything. I hate all these idiots on Twitter who want to blame crowds and blame people. Everyone should be allowed to live their life knowing mm-hmm. the risks. And I don't want to hear about protect the NHS. And I know there's a lot of NHS fans out there. My wife's one of them. And that's fine. Her sister worked for the NHS. But I've had 10 months now to make sure the NHS has had the infrastructure and support they need in extra hospitals. When is the NHS? What about everyone else in the UK? There's millions of other people who live here, not just the NHS and the people you know, who are admitted to hospital or the people who work there. I mean, what about everyone else out here who are losing everything? What about people who are committed suicide? What about people's mm-hmm. family members who are committed suicide? You watch suicide spikes go way through the roof during Christmas. The NHS, yes, they're heroes, the people who work in the front line. But surely the government, since February, March, have had plans to basically invest in the infrastructure to make sure they're not getting overrun all the time. Because that's all they keep trying to stick at you with. Shut down your business, lose everything you've got, because the NHS is getting overrun. Well, that doesn't work for some people, I'm sorry. And particularly people who are younger people who are never in any danger from this virus. So, you know, everyone's getting to the state. I, I can't believe how peaceful people have been about this. But I would imagine there's going to be a lot of laws broken. And shame on any authority or police who arrest anyone or sanction anyone for breaking the COVID rules over mm-hmm. Christmas. You know, because I think, and, 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 you know, another thing, if you're somebody who snitches on people, who've got an extra couple of cars in your driveway over Christmas, there's a special place in hell for you to join those journalists who've written all the articles fucking pressurizing the prime minister to do what he's just done. Yeah? And that fucking little area in hell for you lot, well, fuck me, I hope you all burn there. You know what I mean? Because I hate snitches anyway. The snitches should get stitches. So anyone who's like ringing the authorities because there's an extra car on your neighbor's driveway, get to fuck. That's how I feel about this. Nobody knows somebody else's personal situation, you know, around stuff like that. Correct. But shouldn't they be allowed to make a decision for themselves, Phil? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we talk to all the time about personal responsibility, you know, Correct. you take responsibility for yourself. You make sure that you don't put yourself in any situations that you feel is putting yourself at risk. Um, you shouldn't be told what to do. And I can't see how it's going to be governed anyway. Listen, the police are going to be out in force. That gobshite in Scotland, she's got like Scottish police on all the borders. Do you know what I mean? So I, I seriously think some of these idiots in charge are fucking loving this. They are loving it. And there's a special place in hell for them as well. If I read another person saying lockdowns work, basing it off that gobshite in New Zealand who locked up 5 million people on an island, you know, when you're talking about a place like the United Kingdom or a place like America, you, you can't apply the same logic. It's, it's not the same. And it's not one size fits all, by the way. And all these idiots seem to think it's a one size fits all. The minute they went down this route where instead of, you know, keeping a certain percentage safe till they got a vaccine, they decide mm-hmm. everyone's got to follow the same rules. That's where they've lost the fucking plot because there's no logical sense to it. And all it's going to lead to is even further debt through poverty. And, you know, they're, they're probably going to lock kids up from school in January again. I mean, what a stunt to people in mental health. I'm one of the strongest people you ever met mentally. But I swear to him, Friday, like that cinema, I'll probably look like Bobo the Clown sat there and my <laughs> eyes gone left and right while I'm watching Wonder Woman with the kids. Because I'm just sitting there going, what the fuck world are we living in? I need to get out of the globe and find a country that's like still got some sanity left and maybe move there for a year or two. <laughs> I'm, I'm, driven, I'm driven to the edge. And then my football club, obviously, losing, losing the one thing I had to hang on to. Yeah. Because I would be allowed to go watch the football because it's you know, elite sport. And obviously, I own a football club. And now I can't even fucking do that. So my whole Christmas, as much as I love being with my family, 
my only outdoor trip will be to the fucking supermarket. Mm-hmm. And have you ever heard of me before? I get claustrophobic in supermarkets and I try and avoid them. And now my wife's got the perfect reason. Like, you got to come with me to the supermarket. Only two of us are going to outgo. You know, to live like this. And, and my family are due to go back on the 1st of Jan to America as they got school. And now I'm getting texts and headlines about, oh, because of the UK and the mutated virus nonsense that they're now frightening every country in the fucking world, yeah. my family might get locked out of going home. So it's just like, please wake me up from the twilight zone because we're living in the fucking twilight zone. Instead of just talking about how many people got vaccinated this week, we're talking about more nonsense and shit. You know, do, do you know what I mean? And it's it's just like, I don't know, it drives me, it just drives me to the brink. And when I see this, how this affected so many people, and I know people have died and we all know, mm-hmm. I, I, the one thing I can't really get into or the figures is, is how many people in the UK, what are the average age? I know they'd be older, but they're seeing that information is not as easy to find here as it say is in the US. But you know, would people in their eighties and nineties, God bless them, have passed away, want to know that people in their twenties and thirties are killing themselves? Is is that what you'd want in your eighties and nineties? And it's not about sacrificing one for the other. But like, you know, we're getting to the stage where like the serious conversation has to happen here. You know, about what this is doing to young families, young people, young kids, younger generations. Uh this is just uh I don't know what to say to you, Phil. It's catastrophic. Yeah. And the actions taken by gobshites in charge. You know, your pal Biden is going to come in with his 100-day mask mandate. Ah, fucking great. 95% of California is wearing fucking masks. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you see the statistical record California broke the other day? They're the first place in America to hit 55,000 infected cases in a day. California has been one of the strictest places for 10 months in America. It's spreading. Like, we have family living in Los Angeles. It's spreading like wildfire in Los Angeles at the moment. Can one of the scientists that's sage in the UK, Neil Ferguson and all his fucking pals, and all these idiots who keep advising this is the best course of action, can you please explain to me scientifically how a state like California, which has 25 million people living in it, half the size of the UK, has basically been locked up by that liberal fucking prick of a governor of theirs for eight to 10 months, where you're not allowed to eat indoors, you're not allowed to go out, you're not allowed to go to church, pretty much he locked all the beaches up. Mm-hmm. Basically, people have been driven indoors for months, months, and months, and months, and months. How scientifically have they ended up with the highest rate of infection in one fucking day in US history this year? Right. How does that work when you are so draconian in your rules already? So if that's happening there, how's the UK? Give me the scientific answer, because you're an intelligent guy, Phil. Tell me the logic here. Now, let's flip it where Florida's been open since June. Mm-hmm. How can Florida have less rates per 100,000 in infections, less deaths per 100,000, whatever else, than all these other places that have locked yeah. up? Give me the science behind it, because I keep hearing all the time, follow the scientists, listen to the scientific advice. Well, give me the scientific advice of Florida that's been open since then. Yeah, the difference between them, California and New York, because I, I, I don't get it, pal. I'm lost for words. And the press don't want to write about it. The media don't want to write about it. Yeah. No, and here we are. You know, this weekend we went to Disney yesterday. We'll mm-hmm. we go again on Wednesday or Thursday, and life still continues. Again, being careful. Correct. And you know, you're you're all locked up, and my family in California is all locked up. Yeah, it's fucking madness. So, you know, for those of you out there like who agree with all of this lockup and agree with whatever else, maybe you're used to a life indoors, so you're quite enjoying all of this, but. Take away the sick, twisted side of you that thinks this is the right thing. Have a look around the world. Have a look and go, what does work like? Yeah, sure, New Zealand locked up, whatever. It's an island. Yeah, cool. They were able to defeat coronavirus until they're not. Australia celebrating it. Then there's a breakout. And I think Bondi Beach last week, and suddenly they're all freaked out again. It, you know, the plague, the bubonic plague is still around, by the way. 
It's not as mm-hmm. bad as it was obviously years and years ago, but you can still find forms of it around the world if you do your research online. You ain't getting rid of it. So why can't we just get on with a, a, a cohesive plan just to vaccinate people who need it? And I don't want to hear about racial divide and who gets the vaccine first. The only people who should be getting the vaccine right now are the people over 60 who are the most hospitalized mm-hmm. and the most in danger of mortality. No one else. They're the people who should get it. Once they're done, you can get on with school teachers. You can get on with the people who are relevant. The rest of us can wait at the back of the queue who are in that 99.9% health bracket. Because if you can get people like my neighbor, Margaret, vaccinated, mm-hmm. there's a lot less of her going into the hospital, the ICUs and the NHS getting filled up. So this doesn't need to be political. It just needs to be, let's get people in that age group vaccinated. <laughs> Can I ask you, going back to, um, you know, you having, as a football club, having to shut down, you talked about being in touch with the EFL doctors and kind of having that conversation. Like, whose call is it to make? Is it the EFL saying? No, they, they put it on us. They won't make the call. They put it on us. How much does something like this cost you as a football club? Is there a cost? Not really. I think the real cost is form. If you're in a good run of form, you got we had two home games coming up out of three or three out of four. We're yep. one of the best home teams in the country. So we could have gone into January up top, yeah. you know, a lot higher. You know, we were third. I think we dropped to fifth. We could be eighth, ninth, tenth by the time we get back. So mm-hmm. it could cost us a lot, you know, unless we come out of lockdown and, you know, out of this isolation period on fire, it could cost us promotion. Mm-hmm. So you think I want, you, I want us not playing. I'm hoping our players are professional enough. They don't look like fucking fat boys by the time they return. I know they've all got programs and workout gear. And if any of them come back overweight, there'll be a two-week fine. So I'm hoping they're professional and hungry enough to want a promotion that they come back in good shape. But they were dealing with this. Um, it's just another kick in the balls, Phil. My wife's birthday today. You know, we'd had reservations last week made for lunch. We we're going to Harrods as well this week for lunch, do a bit of last-minute shopping, which we always do for kids for Christmas. We went out the other day to the cinema. We wore masks outside. You'd be proud of us. Mm-hmm. Even when we were walking around a shopping precinct in the high street, because it was so busy, my wife was like, everyone put your masks on. There's a lot of older people around here. No, everyone was wearing masks outside, but the mass majority were, and they were trying and doing it. Cinema was a bit more difficult. You know, there was a few people in there, and you take your mask off to eat and drink. But, like, you know, we were doing our bit, as we always do, and we always have. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, at some stage, people are going to be like, how long do I keep doing my bit when I keep getting smacked in the ass all the time? You know, you told me shut my business down, shut my business down. You told me open my business and fix Let's talk about a football club, fix the ground and do this and make it COVID safe and COVID friendly. I did that. You told me I got to have fans back. Great. I did that. Fans are back. Now you've taken my fans away after six days of having fans back. Okay. I've did that. It's just constant all the time, changing the script, changing the goalposts, changing whatever. And it's just financially a killer. It's just hurting all the time. It's non fucking stop. Now, God bless people who own restaurants. I was saying this to my wife the other day. Well, actually, we do own restaurants because we've got bars and restaurants in the stadium. God bless people who bought loads of food for Christmas to sell. Right. God bless hotels who had full houses booked for Christmas and who had to turf out guests on Saturday night. God bless my friend Ian, who I know really well, and Peter Buffan. He was going to see his mom and dad in Scotland after doing the bubble stuff and staying safe and everything else. And now he can't even do that. And he's Scottish and he's not allowed to go home. You know what I mean? Like, God bless anyone who's a certain age who's going to sit indoors now after probably following the rules with family the last two weeks so they could spend it together. You've just made a mockery of all of that. You've just crushed all of those people. And yeah, of course, not everyone's going to be responsible and people might have died, but you're not allowing people to make those choices for themselves. If someone decides to be reckless at a certain age and go out and expose themselves to coronavirus, that's on them. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, and yes, of course, you don't want other people exposing them as well. But no one in a certain age should be putting themselves in a position where they're exposed to coronavirus, right? 
So you're not helping. The rules don't work. There's no trust in government anymore. There's no trust over here. Everyone's just lost faith. And you got the Labour leader shouting, he'd do it better. And Cannes and London, he do it. It's a lot of bollocks. They're all fucking liars. And look, if Alan Swan's listening to this, don't make a big ET special, you know, about our coronavirus issues at the training ground or, you know, whatever else. I don't need heat from all sections on this. And the club doesn't either. Cut us some slack. Last thing I need is to see a lot of like inflammatory headlines or whatever else. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, as you can tell, I'm exhausted with it. Yeah. Um. So that's my COVID rant for today. Really, really God bless all the people out there who are going to spend Christmas on their own. Um, like my neighbor, Margaret, who's 86. And, um, you know, I'm gutted for people like that. I'm gutted for young families who, you know, again, had made plans and they're just destroyed. I'm gutted for people who were too busy working and were waiting until the final five days of Christmas to go and shop for stuff for their mm-hmm. children who are now fucking in bits, worried about what Santa's going to bring them. Yeah, how can you tell you? Can- uh, you tell me, Phil. You know, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm telling my daughters, their mom can't see her sister. She can't see her brother. You know, this is fucking madness. Uh, I, I mean, this is, the, this is the twilight zone. I feel like I need to wake up because this is just like an absolute nightmare. And if my kids can't back get back to America now to go to school, that's going to be a bigger fucking nightmare. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all these worries, and because it's like every day you don't know what to expect or what's happening today or tomorrow or, you know, because it just changes all the time. It's a roller coaster, isn't it? They've given everyone this five days of Christmas. Just They should have just left it. Stop. But I saw all the articles being written by these pen pushers who wrote articles. Oh, we must lock up. We must do this. We must do that. And again, special place in hell for them. And, and the government bowed to the pressure. You know, and, and I, I could go through statistics and data and everything else. We've been through Thanksgiving. This thing wasn't going away to people are vaccinated. You should have just let people get Christmas in and make that choice themselves, as mm-hmm. you'd pre-agreed. You locked England up or the UK up for a month with the promise that people would get Christmas. So you locked them up. You fucking lied. You opened up. You gave us fans back. You took it away. You gave people Christmas. You took it away. Get to fuck. Go fuck yourself. You're fucking frauds, cowards, liars, and you don't deserve anyone's trust. So on that note, hopefully next week, well, actually we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We have all this in the, the, the rearview mirror behind us. Yeah. There's absolutely. no confidence. No, there's no confidence. There's no confidence. It's just like, no, the people are lying, Phil. If you keep getting lied to over and over, and it's, it's like, fool me once, you know what they say, fool me twice. I mean, you know, as the saying goes. So look, forget COVID. Let's get on to the good news. Yeah. The good news for you is, You've got a football club, like I warned you last week, when you fire your manager, your team will start winning. What's fucking happened? You're, you got four points from two games. Four points out of six, yeah. You were having your first fucking wank on your own for a long time on Saturday about the way Bradford played. It was much better. You know, we it's frustrating in one respect, but we're not at the point where I want to be frustrated. I want to be happy that we got three points. So we sacked Stuart, as we talked about. We brought in a couple of the youth team coaches, you know, played a couple of the kids as well. Brilliant. New formation. Um, you know, kind of went a little bit more pragmatic, but players knew what they were doing and where their positioning was. And it was like night and day. So we'll see. We'll see if that's the start of a trend or if it's a blip. But um, we, it just, it was nice, you know, for a change because, you know, I was doing the math and in this calendar year, it's only the seventh time we've won since January the 1st. Um, it's been a pretty tough year and it was the fourth win of the season. And uh, yeah, we go, we got Grimsby tomorrow. So we've got another team that's down there that we have a chance. Was there a party you suddenly dreaming about the playoffs now? <laughs> <laughs> Before you were worried about non-league? 
not me but it's funny that you know you see folks on twitter now saying oh we're only 12 points off the playoffs you know with a game in hand i love football fans optimism <laughs> and negativity I'll tell you, it's like optimism and pessimism right there yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's take one step at a time mm. um you know by the time that this goes out we might have a new manager who's it gonna be so the money is on, like, I have no idea. The money is on Paul Hurst at the moment. You know, did well at Shrewsbury. Did miracles at Shrewsbury. I think he did well for Grimsby, um, for getting them out of the conference. Mm-hmm. Didn't do so well at Ipswich or at Scunthorpe. No. So I think that whoever we go with, it's going to, you know, you think of it from an outsider and think, I'm not really inspired by any of the choices that we've got. But, okay. you know, the reality is you're third, fourth, bottom of League Two. Um, sure. The same challenges that existed for the old manager are going to exist for the new one. You know, how attractive of a proposition is it? And we talked about this before, you know, catching a falling sword and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm probably not going to be inspired by anybody, um, but they got to... Who do you want? Out of everyone that's out there at the moment available, who do you want? Well, he's not available, but I would have liked uh, Michael Flynn from Newport, which isn't going to happen, um, you know, because he has a connection to us. Mm-hmm. Out of work, I would have liked, uh, I would have been interested in the Cowleys for sure, um, but I think they can aim higher. The people that are out there that you want are not going to come to League Two and they may have a job to prove themselves that the last job was a blip. They're going to go into somewhere that's a more favorable position. You're going to get somebody who's had a couple of failures, who doesn't have a choice at those jobs, who's going to come in and have to, to turn his career around. 100%. And I think that's the kind of manager we're going to be. And I don't want to say stuck with, because I don't mean stuck with. It's just the reality of the kind of manager that we're going to be able to attract. Do you want someone old or young? Honestly, I'm ambivalent. I mean, I don't necessarily want a journeyman who's been around and stuff, but I'm a big believer that age doesn't really matter. It's mindset. And so, you know, I want somebody with the mindset who's going to think about building foundations for the club. And that starts at the beginning. It starts with the youth structure. It starts with kind of the things that you're doing with Peterborough. You know, it's about going away from this boom and bust. One manager comes in, he brings in his entire team. They get sacked. The entire team goes, you're left with nothing but empty cupboards again. And you're starting again. And that's the cycle. I mean, We've had seven managers in the last two and a half years. Yeah, it's too many. Not including caretakers. Yeah, it's too, it's too many. I think the next conversation has to be, and again, honesty and transparency with the fans. This is the manager. This is the plan. If it doesn't work, we go non-league. We're sticking to this manager because we're going to put the building blocks in there to rebuild. Over. You need three windows to fix the problem. Yeah. You know, when I hired Darren Ferguson, I knew he'd need three windows. You know, I'd pretty much before I hired him, one of those windows was done where I brought in the Trinity, the Mac attack. Mm-hmm. We'd recruited those players already. So, but I knew he needed two more. He needed the following summer and the following January to cement that promotion and go on. So you need three good windows if this is what we want to do. And if we go down, as long as we go down fucking fighting, that manager is going to be there next year and going to be rebuilding. That's what you need to be with the fans and tell the fans to buckle up. Yeah, you need to have some patience. You do. I mean, I mean, I'm glad for you to change course. I had the horn last night watching Leeds and Man United play. Mm-hmm. I spoke to my gaffer today, and I probably made him feel a bit like fucking insecure because I was like, <laughs> I was like, God Almighty! Like the old days when we were winning games five three and six four, and we always looked like we score five goals. I said it reminded me of us, gaffer. I said, what "Was that Bielsa doing with Leeds? I swear to you, they could have won that game ten eight last night. Mm-hmm. That was probably the best football match I've watched in ages." Um, Leeds, it's like you could pick a postman off the road and put him in at right back and turn him into a footballer. I mean, I, I know some people, they don't like him, but I'm a Bielsa fan. 
Um, you know, the football he's got Leeds playing, no word of a lie, Phil. Have you seen the chances? Even when they were 6-2 down. Yeah, I didn't get to see the game yesterday. They're playing with freedom. They're playing with panage. They must have had another five chances. You know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm not talking about, like, difficult chances. Pretty easy chances, some of them. And it's just like, I said to the gaffer, fuck me, you got to get down there and watch how they train. So I was, like, winding them up today. And I was locked it out. But I was just like, it, it really is, like, that's how I want to see football play. You know, I, I, I want to see football like that. Chances, chances, chances. So when you, you know, you go out and that's your mentality, you want to see that kind of football and you get a 6-2 hiding, does that do anything to rein it in a little bit? Or are you, as long as you went out in the right spirit and you showed, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember when the gaff came back the second time around and we had a really exciting squad. We got tanked, I think, 3-1 by Brighton. We, you know, a couple of other teams tanked us. But then I knew we had in us that the following fixture, I think we won 6-0 at Oldham, we won 5-0 at uh, Carlisle. We had it in us where we could be champagne and then we could be a fucking bottle of shampoo. You know what I mean? Like, and it was basically like a good manager can fix that if you're going for promotion. You can iron out the issues. And we were probably famous that season for scoring a shitload and conceding mm-hmm. a shitload. But when it came to the final two, the second leg of the semi-final playoff, the final itself, we had two clean sheets and looked defensively strong while still a goal-scoring threat. So we'd figured it out. Yeah. So uh, and, and some teams can just play champagne football all the way through to promotion. Um, so I'm just that guy. I want to watch my team on the front foot. I want to watch us have... I've always said, if we get beaten 5-0, but we've had 20 shots on goal, it doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we get beaten 1-0, and their goalkeepers fucking had lunch and dinner without even being bothered, that bothers me. So that, that's just me as a person. Some people are different. Now, when you're looking at stats, you know... There's been the rise of XG and everyone talking XG. You know, is that something that you follow or is it, um, you know, how impactful is that for you? Not so much in the XG, but I mean, obviously I do my data and stats review. We spoke about it last week. I've given the manager a few stats and, you know, after the MK Don's draw during the week, I gave him a few stats and a few sobering mm-hmm. stats and said, geez, you know, Russell Martin, your ex-player, he, he knows how to keep the football and pass the ball. Again, I like to wind him up, you know, but, yeah. you know, and, and obviously we were kind of ball watchers most of that game. MK Don's just basically passed it around us for 90 minutes and, our goalie didn't have much to do. There were a lot of fur coat and no knickers involved. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, we stopped wanting to score after going 1-0 up. And I, uh, that's not who the manager wanted to do. I just think our players, it was a heavy pitch. They had a game on Saturday. It was heavy. I just think they thought, you know what, we grind out a 1-0 here. Yeah. I'd rather the attitude be go and score another one. Um, you know, so there was a lot of statistics from that game that weren't pretty. But I, I avoided giving them to the manager, you know, at the moment because obviously mm-hmm. we had the win the Saturday before. I, I, sometimes you focus on the positive stuff. Yeah, stats and data, they're just a part of the game. I said it the other day. I did like a training course for a load of people who were trying to do their badges to become managers, and they wanted a voice, a Zoom call with me. Nathan Thompson asked me to do it with some of his his fellow students, and mm-hmm. they want to work as directors of football and the technical side. And I said to them, "Don't get hung up on spending hours on stats. Sometimes the beauty, sometimes the beauty of being on the training ground." with the grass, the ball, and teaching people how to finish, how to cross, how to pass, how to play out of, uh, you know, a hard press, how to break down a hard press. Those things are more relevant than data, stats, and analytics. So sometimes we can get too hung up on that stuff. Just my opinion. Yeah, it's kind of the, the balance of the two. Of course it is. You know, for me, recruitment's about stats, data. You know, management has a little bit of it. And then the real essence to management for me is improving players. I'll always say to my manager halfway through the season, tell me who we've improved since the summer. Mm-hmm. So I had that chat with him the other day. I said, run through the players who you genuinely think have improved since July, August. And 
If a manager can go four, five, six, seven players, you know you're on the right thing. If a manager's struggling after one, you've got a lot of housekeeping, a lot of work to do. So I, I think it's really important. Now, do you then use the data to measure that? You know, so you baseline them at the beginning of the year, and you can use those same stats mid-year to see. Hundred percent. Joe, you know. Joe Ward last year had loads of final third entry points, but his statistics for creating goals, being in goal scoring attacks, wasn't as good as it should have been. Mm. He's already three times higher this year on that. Um, you know, so straight away you know the management, as coaches have improved Joe Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the younger players I would have seen in preseason games. I've seen already massive improvements in those young players. Again, that's a credit to the coaches and the manager. You, do, do you know what I mean? So Ivan Tony, you would have looked at two years ago, his statistics, his missed chance conversions, his ratios, percentages, and they were up through the roof over 100% last year. That's not a coincidence. He had a different manager the mm-hmm. last 18 months, and I don't want to slay previous managers, but that's credit to Gavin Strachan, who was the assistant coach, to Darren Ferguson, to the way we play. I do little things like that because I like to, I like the manager to listen and go, oh, I'm getting a bit of credit here. Because I like to talk about it. And sometimes they have to remind themselves that put results to the side. If you're improving players individually, collectively, it's a bigger picture. If you're talking to a manager for 20 minutes and you can't find one player, you know, it's 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 like if I said to you, who's, who did Stuart McCall improve in the Bradford team you've watched for the last five months? You probably brought that young player, couldn't name five. No, I couldn't. I go. couldn't name one. There you go. So you're struggling. So that that so there you might say Stuart does deserve some criticism, even though you're a big fan, because no matter how bad things are, a good manager and coach will improve players, and more credit would be, and that would be reflection of Bielsa and the way he has Leeds playing, where he's got Luke Eiling, who we were playing against when he was at Yeovil, who's now playing in the Premier League and running twelve miles a game. Do you know what I mean? So so again, sometimes look through it and see, you know what, they're bloody good on the training ground. Just to finish up on the week, Liverpool now four points clear, which seemed like they came from nowhere. Man United now third, only two points off Liverpool if they win a game in hand, and Spurs are down to fifth. So it's just interesting to see how things are kind of churning at the top, but also great to see some competition this year. Yeah, and, and Lampard's back. I, I gave him credit recently, but all the stuff I criticised him for, they've, they've again dropped the ball, haven't they? The only real threat to Liverpool is Man City. It's the only credible threat, in my opinion. If Liverpool lose another two players to long-term injuries, then they've got a real issue. But they've managed to get over the hump. I said to you when Liverpool got the injuries, they're going to have to score more than the opposition. Well, you know, mm-hmm. as, as it's been found out, they're actually finding strength from within and, and they're making it work and they're, they're plowing results. The good thing for Liverpool is if you look at the points they've dropped, they should have beaten Everton, VR, VAR robbed them. Um, you know, they should have beaten mm-hmm. Brighton, VAR robbed them again in injury time. They could be actually 10 points clear. And when they've got against the better teams, they've actually got the results. You know, the Leicester result they've won, the Tottenham result they've won. So what they've got is that winning mentality. So they have to be favourites. But for me, Man City are the dark horse because Man City haven't had strikers. And they're, they're, I think they're six points off Liverpool with a game in hand. It'd be five points if they win a game in hand. Man United, we know how good their players are. I'm just not sure about their manager. So I've got no doubt they'll right. be possibly top four. I don't think they can mount a serious title challenge because I think he'll drop the ball. But I think Pep Guardiola, because of his history and his players, if he goes out and spends fifty million on a new striker in January, Houston, we've got a problem. If Liverpool lost Mane and Salah in January, Houston were fucked. Mm-hmm. You know, so so let's see how it goes. Credit the Klopp and the Liverpool squad and team. If they win their next four or five fixtures in a row, the title race is over. Do you think they're going to be in the market in January? I think the only thing Liverpool need to do is go out and buy a centre half. They have to. They have to go out. For me, if I were them, I'd go and give Brighton fifty million for Ben White. 
you know, they have to or go and get Cody back from Wolves. He's a bit old now, mm-hmm. for, probably. But they need to go and get a Premier League centre-half, someone who's played in the Premier League. Not a foreigner, Premier League. Because if you want to bring them in to help win the title from January to May, they need to hit the floor running. So for me, the problem you've got at the moment is Matip's made a glass. That fella breaks down every other game. He's unreliable. Gomez is out. Van Dijk is out. And then you've got Fabinho in midfield. They had to play Henderson next to him the other day against it was, I don't know, Spurs. He was against. So when you get to that stage and you're trying to rely on a 21-year-old, which is great and they've done really well, go out and buy a centre-half. Just a bit of comfort and insurance there. I don't think they need anything else. As long as Jota comes back from his knee injury in, a, in January or whatever else, they've got support. And Shakiri, who's made a glass, they can keep him fit. They've got a chance of they could win the league by again fifteen points if 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 they go out and invest in the centre half, and I think if they don't, it could be tighter. All right, we'll keep watching. Well, um, we're going to go into a quick break, and then we shall be back in a moment. Hi everybody, welcome back to the pod. We're going to talk football finance, and we're actually going to break this up into a couple of parts uh, because I want to do a little bit of a deep dive on the. The kind of financial side of running a, a football club, running an EFL League One, League Two football club. And so as I split this up, today we're going to talk income, expenditure, and profitability. And then next week, um, or the next pod, sorry, which is going to be a couple of weeks' time now because of the Christmas break, we're going to talk sources of finance. We're going to be talking about you know trading off and how do we make investments as football clubs and valuation as well. So let's talk about income. Is there a typical turnover of a League One club? In- income? Did you say income in the year 2020? <laughs> All right, let's let's scratch 2020. <laughs> so you talk about income. So it depends on the league you're in. And I guess when I came into Peter United, I had the 4-1 rule. And it was basically like we, you know, we were striving to hit 4 million in turnover. Mm-hmm. And the 4-1 rule for me was, was trying to hit a million in season tickets, a million in gate receipts, a million in commercial revenue, and a million in ancillary revenue, whether it be transfer fees, extra food and drink sold, uh, all that kind of stuff that went with it. So that was my because I think when 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 I bought Peterborough, the turnover was probably like two and a half million a year, if that, you know, and and you know you oh, so you, another million you could add in there is obviously TV. Did I say TV uh, money as well and, mm-hmm. and Sky money, which back then was like probably half of what it is now. Yeah. So you know that was the first bump to get the turnover up. I always looked at it. Now as a club, we're always in that probably eight to twelve million turnover range in League One, and that's always hyperinflated because the transfer fees of what we do. If you take my record, and again, I always say nobody takes enough notice of that record. The last 11 years, I think we've brought in, if you take 11 years only, on 17 players, it was calculated recently at 51 million in transfer fees. So we averaged nearly 5 million in transfer fee income, you know, which is pretty good going for a League One club. And again, like I said, not people write about it. Um, so that always helps with our turnover. So I always used to go into the season saying that our cash flow negative would always be about two, two and a half million. Meaning me, my partners, you know, whoever would have to find two, two and a half million. That's without sales. That's without cup runs. That's without whatever. So in a season, you would hope then if you could get a good FA Cup run together, half a million off that brings it down to two million. If you're having a promotion run, suddenly your gates that you projected at five and a half, six thousand, suddenly you're eight thousand. Mm-hmm. There's an extra half a million in revenue. Now you're down to one and a half on your cash flow. If you ended up in the playoffs and the TV and Wembley and did it, did it, did it, there's another few hundred grand. Suddenly you're about 1.2. It's not two and a half. All right, now I can sell maybe a player. That's going to clear mm-hmm. the decks on the million. That's going to pay a million off maybe in money out to me or directors. And it's going to put some money into the club to replenish and buy more players. So if you want to get into specifics on turnover, what would a club like us turn over? You can buy our accounts and you can probably correct me here. We probably take about 
a million a year in gate in season tickets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we probably take about between 1.3 and 1.7 in gate receipts, depending on how the season goes. That's kind of on the day, over and above the twenty-three league games, potentially more. We, you know, we probably take another one and a half million in commercial revenue with with naming rights, uh, shirt deals. That's come on a bundle since I bought the club. We've got some great commercial people. We probably take another. It's now up to about is it one point two, one point no, probably about one point five million in TV money now. Mm-hmm. Good League One club saying the top half will be five and a half to six and a half million. Mm-hmm. Now throw in added bonuses do you know what i mean if we have a little run in the fa cup if we have a little run in the league cup if we have a run in the checker trade which we did once they get up to the six million mark so anything over that then is you sell a player and unfortunately unfortunately for us you know we've obviously bought players we run at a deficit we don't hit our crowd numbers we try and aim low what we set out a budget every year we don't over hype it we try and hit it to where worst case here and then if we have a successful season it goes up here so I would like to think, even without selling a player, if we have a really good season, we can get up to seven million in turnover. Mm-hmm. That's for a club like us with seven thousand gates, six, seven thousand. Obviously, a club with twice that gate number or three times that gate number, you can add a lot more zeros and millions to the turnover. You're going to get your 10, 15 million turnover. If you put us in the championship, that seven million turnover becomes more like 13, 14 million. Because the TV money is a lot larger, the ticket prices go up. Your away crowds that come help your attendance go up by 30, 40%. So you're talking different stratosphere, probably nearly even double the turnover of what you get in League One. But we've always probably comfortably hit, if you took an average over the last 10 years, we've probably always hit, I would say, between 8 to 11 million in turnover because we've sold players for a million. Because the transfers, right? The transfer fees, yeah. Now, as you're budgeting, do you look at budgeting to break even at the end of each year? So let's say you plan for a deficit and you want to clear it or you might carry that forward to the next year, knowing you've got assets on the books that would, you know, far outweigh uh, multiple years of deficits. Our finance director will take the lead usually for me. What I'll do always is, like during COVID, you know, was very difficult she was doing five different budgets based on crowds no crowds government this that shutdown season ending early it was impossible in a normal given year by may when we know pretty much where we're going to be we start drawing up plan a and plan b so it's a bu- it's a budget for the year plan a is championship plan b is if we're in league one and i'll say to her look i want you to budget we're going to have these players i'll even put in the targets we have the wages we're going to pay them yep. and we have an area here of players that we need to get out she keeps them in the budget but with a little red line that if they come out, it comes down to this. Mm-hmm. So usually she would, you know, by the time she calculates everything and we estimate, say, finishing top 10 in League One, this crowd, she'll have a cup run where we get knocked down the second round of the FA Cups. So There's very little cup income in there. But usually she would have more or less in there anywhere from two to three million in negative cash flow that we're going to lose. Mm-hmm. So I always know what I need to do in my mind for a season coming up, yeah. what we need to sell. Now, when we did the COVID one, it was horrendous before we sold Ivan Tony. Our losses were projected to be in the five to six million pound mark. Right. So it was almost double the normal year. And that was because no crowds, our sponsors weren't paying the same amounts. Obviously, season ticket revenue. There was so much we had to put in, testing costs, losses from before. It was just it was just a ball ache and it was a big, big amount. So mm-hmm. thankfully the Ivan Tony helped and still allowed us to potentially go out and recruit. But like I said the other day, I did a I did a podcast on BBC Five Live. I was cheating on you, you know. They asked me to do a little pilot podcast with them. So um, I said on there we were talking about buying players. You know, when we buy players, I always hedge our bets. We buy them over time. So Johnson Clark Harris, 
he would be in thirty uh, percent of his fee would be in this year's cash flow. Thirty mm-hmm. percent next year, thirty percent the year after. Hopefully by year three we've sold him for millions, so we never quite pay the full amount. So we always we always spread that. And then obviously if we sell a player, if that's over four years, we factor to bring it into this year's budget. So that's where we try and always balance the books. It's really really difficult, but it's something I enjoy actually doing. Yeah. Um, as you're factoring, so that's essentially selling the the full amount that you do to get in for a discount, but to get the cash today. Correct. You know, are you able to share kind of what what impact that has on the cash you get in, or you know, are you so, so usually is it you losing ten percent, you losing five percent? What's that? Look usually like? between eight to ten percent. So mm-hmm. if we're getting a let's say as an example, we're taking a five million pound fee, and we're getting only two million of that now. That means there's three million that's out there next year, the year after, but we need it brought forward this year. So I will sacrifice 300 grand to get 3 million in. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so that's how we live instead of like putting it over years and years and years. So there are companies out there that do it. It can be between 8 to 12%. We have a relationship with one company reviews, so we've always got a better rate each time and the fees and whatever else. So for me, I don't know why more people don't do it. And it just means that we've got our budget in place for this year and it's what we do and whatever else. So but look, a big part of what we do is selling players. And if we don't sell a player, it's me and my partners that have to come up with the money. My partners have been brilliant with that. You know what I mean? Whether, you know, if there's been a shortfall, you know what I mean? They've taken a, you know, a hit on that. But uh, it's been made up then when we sell a player. And, yeah. you, you know, so I, I said the other day, the dream scenario would be within the next two, three years is basically everyone who's put money into the club is paid back plus interest. Mm-hmm. And there is no debt. There's no external debt to any any investor, any partner, any creditor, and to me, to my partners, to whoever, where you want to be at a place, you're at a base where, you're self-sufficient. You've got that great academy. You've got your young gems. You've got your assets. We're in the top 12 of the championship. That's the dream. And, and, and I know fans will go, well, we don't want owners getting money out of the club. We don't take money out of the club. We only take when we can, if we can, money that we've put into the club. So that's just the way the real world works. None of us are billionaires or shakes. <laughs> you know, if you have the cash flow to be able to support that from a, Correct. you know, from your own resources perspective, you and your partners, it's very difficult for the clubs to get. And we'll talk about sources of financing in the next one, but it's hard for the clubs to get hold of that kind of cash. I'll give you an example. I had a situation a good few years ago, and cash flow for me can be up and down. And I had a situation where the club needed two million, and I took it out of my wife's house. Mm-hmm. My wife had a house, you know, here that she bought, you know, many years ago. So um, I basically found a factoring company that gave us two million against the house. I had to pay two hundred grand in interest, mm-hmm. and I put it into the club. And then a couple of years later, the club paid it back. Mm-hmm. The money was maturing, and it had to be paid back. Otherwise, the house would have to be sold. So basically, like you know, the club when we sold a player for big bucks, paid it back, and happy days. I didn't take, they didn't pay back the interest. I lost on the, I paid the interest. The interest was like two hundred grand or whatever else, but the house was fine. You know, and, and to be fair to my wife, you know, she was as good as gold. She understood how it worked. At the time, I had investments in markets. So I didn't want to cash them in. You know, the easiest way was to go and get equity out of an asset. I helped the club for 12 months. I knew I'd get it back. It actually took 24 months to get paid back, but I was okay with that. And we sold a player. So sometimes that's the way it works. Look, it was, I helped the club out and then the club helped out, you know, in return to, to pay it back. And you're in that fortunate situation. And I say fortunate, it's a planned situation where you have the talent that you can sell to cash in to be able to bring money into the club. Whereas an awful lot of League One and League Two clubs don't have that talent that if they need to, they can cash it out. Like they don't have those assets to sell. Yes. You look at, say, as an example, me taking two million out of my wife's home. 
to put into the club. Out of that two million, probably about three hundred grand of the two million went to buying players. So one point seven went in, three hundred grand went to buying those players. I would go and recruit and buy. And funny enough, one of those three hundred grand buys was sold for three point two million twenty four months later. So that's the payoff. That doesn't always happen. But obviously, the 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 idea of what I do, how I recruit now, obviously me and my partners, how we recruit is, you know, fortune favors the brave. So we would go out and, and, and what I like about my partners is we, we had a chat the other day and they were saying to me, you know, what are the next gems on your recruitment list? And I was talking through them and like Jason and Randy straight away were like, well, are you getting that player? And I'm like, do you want me to do a deal for that player? And they were like, are you, are you confident this player is going to be worth X amount in two years time? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah. And they went, well, you know, that's what you do. That's what we do. Let's get going. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's been a privilege to have that support. You know, because I haven't always been, you know, fluid, you know, cash wise, and I put in when I can and whatever else. And, and they've always stood up for that. And, you know, that, that's what makes them brilliant partners and, you know, in tougher times, particularly through COVID. So, and that's what works really well. And, uh, but they also know that, like me with the house a long time ago, they get their money back and they get interest on it if necessary. Yeah, you've got a proven business model now. Absolutely. I've got, I've got a squad now and I've posh fans sometimes laugh when I say 20 million worth 20, but you look at the players I've sold, I'm always right about my valuations. Mm-hmm. I've got a squad now of young players, players on the, on the edge of being special that we could be worth anywhere from 20 to 30 plus million pounds in players over the next two years. I've got a factory of talent churning through mm-hmm. that's been recruited. So we're okay in that way that if we have to sell a player, I could sell a player. I could right now, Barry's just texted me as another offer from someone else. I could right now take an offer and do that deal. But my, my partners are the type that go, we want the trees to grow a bit more uh, instead of chopping them down early. You have the ability to invest in that and to nurture it. Right. So they're saying, like, let's maybe wait on that. And in the summer, we'll maybe get more and, and we do this and we do whatever. So it's it's really fortunate to be in a position in this pandemic that we still have those assets and those players are still churning over and wanted. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like Dembele is a player. You know, if I told you clubs in Scotland want him, obviously one in the Premier League wants him until the summer, two in the Championship want him. You know, that, that's probably the next one that, you know, there's going to be a bit of a... And probably hasn't his best couple of games recently, but statistically, he's the best player in League One. If you pull up all the stats today, he is statistically a phenom in League One for that winger-type striker. Could do it some more goals, but people in the Champ and even in the Prem and in the S, the, the top Scottish Premier League, top clubs there, see the talent and know that bums on seats and what he can do. So that's the next one I'll be churning and then going, okay, no, right now, if the offer's not good enough, but we know we could sell. So that's just how it works at Posh. Now, from a cash flow perspective, generally, like when you talked about the typical, the non-transfer revenue um, stream. So when you look at TV deals and season ticket money and the commercial, like do you have periods of the year where you're cash rich and then you have periods of the year where you're not really getting much cash in the door and can that impact yeah you know how a club operates if they don't have the ability to kind of flatten that well, out we're never cash rich you know being a league mm-hmm. one club you're never cash rich so but you've got periods where you, your season ticket revenue comes march april may so you have a big tick there you get your tv money monthly or you can get it in four installments sometimes i'll factor that forward as well do you know what i mean like it, it's six months ahead and you get your commercial money it depends on the commercial deal. Is it monthly? Is it paid in installments? You know, like naming rights or, or, or you know jersey rights or whatever else. Your match day revenue you get every match day because you mm-hmm. get people buying tickets. You know your shop money. The shop probably takes about six hundred grand a year, or it did before the pandemic. So you would average that out at twelve grand a week. 
you know, some weeks you might take 18, some weeks you might take five. It depends. If we went through a playoff run, you'd get two TV games, you get a Wembley appearance, you could add another five, 600 grand to your, to your income. That's not in your budget. Um, if we had an horrendous time where we weren't up there and people didn't want to come and watch us and we dropped below our projected estimates, that means the mm-hmm. cap flow is going to be down. It's, it's never a nice time. For us as a club, like example, at the moment, we had to find 600 grand in December and we had to find 1.3 million in January. Or if find six hundred grand in February, that's not yeah. in the club because of this COVID, because of the government, because of the lack of help, because of cash flow, because of wages, no one's taking any pay cuts, because of all that stuff. That's what we have to find, and obviously that's a pressure on owners and everything else when you're going through this pandemic. And it's not this isn't woe is me and oh you know whatever else. I'm just telling the truth. If our net deficit this year is say even after the Ivan sale three million, it's in batches. So December mm-hmm. heavy, January heavy, February heavy, March, April, not so heavy, June, July, August, horrendous because there's no football and no yeah. income. So so it's, right. it's in different periods of the year. Do, do you know what I mean? So if we sell a player, that changes, you know, and, and you know, like in August when we sold Ivan, we were probably ripe at the time and doing okay, but we weren't because we were paying PAYE we owed, we were paying wages we deferred, we were paying bills we deferred, we were paying down payments for players we brought in we were doing all this stuff we were six months behind because of the pandemic so we weren't really cash rich but probably for a day in the bank the bank manager was like, oh, getting very excited it's giving you calls all of a sudden that uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 trying yeah. to encourage you to yeah. do something this money in the bank yeah, correct you know and, and, and the irony is that when the bailout money came in the 375 grand or whatever the magnificent figure was um us and a lot of clubs had i think we'd not paid paye for one month only um, the day the money was sent in to us, the following day, the PIO people mm-hmm. left us alone for 30 days suddenly rang us. And it's just like, you know, your government's done this to us. Give me a break. Give me a fucking break. Like, seriously. And, you, you, you know, this is the shit you're dealing with, pal. And then, like, we're in our budget. We, we had in our budget, we, we had fans back in January. This one, we did the budget last year. So we had X amount in January, February, March, April from people paying to come and see us. And that's come out. <laughs> and now some money's been put in for April and May. And now this new tier shit, that's probably come out. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's just horrendous. Um, you know, and then obviously we gave the option for people for season ticket refunds. That wasn't in our budget. So suddenly you're budgeting 70 grand this month and maybe 70 grand next month. And yeah, I, I don't want to say So you're to paying all those refunds and in a lump sum if somebody wants to take the refund. We, we've given our fans the option of the refund over three months to help us with cash flow. And the three months of December, January, and February. And we've been really lucky that a large percentage of fans have taken up the donation offer, mm-hmm. you know, the, the different options where it's not necessarily refunds, but we still do have refunds. And unfortunately, refunds have to be paid. Yeah. So, you know, and we're, we're, we're handing that and managing that. And our, our amazing ticket offers are handing that and Chris and co. But again, like I said to you, it's just this, every time you turn around, it's like another foot on the head. It's just like constant, you know. And I said to you last week, with the, we had our fans back, now they're gone again. You know, I was I was really optimistic with a vaccine and everything coming, and I thought Johnson, there's no way he can destroy the economy anymore. So he's gonna, you know, the tier thing will be lifted, and we'll yeah. have our four thousand season ticket holders back. Maybe we'll get another two thousand in pain on the day. So maybe now we'll have revenue. We'll have mm-hmm. the appetite for season tickets in March and April will be through the roof. Next year it'll be full. People can see a future. Yeah, and, and and you know, and then they've just done this during Christmas, and then I thought, well, the club shop will do really well during Christmas. And again, like now we're we're shot, and we can do, yeah. you know, deliveries. Oh, it's just it's just fucking. 
And honestly, God, I sound like a broken record. It's just constant, constant, constant. So let's go into the expenditure side then. And this, again, is kind of a typical year, um, if there is such a thing as a typical. When you look at you know a revenue of, let's say, in that six to eight million pounds for a typical League One club who doesn't necessarily have the ability to go and cash in a lot of chips that you do, I guess it's maybe it's a little moot now because of the salary cap, but pre-salary cap, what would you be looking at from a... Um, like a percentage of that that would you would budget to go on playing staff? I think in the past, you know, obviously salaries have risen and risen and risen. If you were to take a percentage figure for us, per se, on turning over six to seven, eight million, our salaries are probably well over 60, 70% of that. Yeah. It, originally, you had the, the, the 60% rule where you can only spend 60% of what you bring in, but then that doesn't include your staff of the club. So our whole salary bill probably hits... 65, 70% of our turnover, which is too high. You know, in a perfect world, it'd probably be 40, 60, okay. you know, 40 to 60%. I can't speak for other clubs. I know other clubs live within their means, fair play. With the new salary cap brought in, yes, you've got the it's two and a half million. But don't forget, outside of the two and a half million, you can have under 21s that aren't included. So your wage bill will be bigger than two and a half million. Yeah. You, then, you then throw in all your staff, you know, who aren't in the salary cap. Our wage bill this year is probably well over 4 million four and a half, five million with national insurance. You start going back to what's owed as well and pay deferrals from the few months of players deferred. So well over five million. Yeah. You then throw in agents fees, signing on fees. I didn't speak about the other thing last week we got hit with was our pitch turned into a disaster and we wanted to find out why. And then we found out underneath there's a massive leak water leak from the local water authority and they had to fix a pipe and now it's flooded all underneath our brand new pitches we put in, which we spent nearly 700 grand on two of those pitches. So we're dealing with all of that too. So you start going into other expenses. We have a training ground, and then we have a whole other Excel spreadsheet for training ground expenses. And that training ground, electricity, rates, rent, pitches, everything else, probably well over 350 grand a year, just on that. You then go into things like away travel. You know, it's two and a half, three grand in away game. So you don't get all 23. Do you stay over? Yes. So you probably find 15 of the 23 are staying over. Yeah. So again, there's another plus you throw in the coach cost. You then start talking about sports science, multivitamins, gym, work, all the stuff. We have also what we call repairs and maintenance. There's a whole other thing in the expense column that if you look at ours, for our shitty old stadium that we pay half a million in rent on every year, probably costs us another three, 400 grand in repairs. Right. Every year, the local safety authority make us fix things and do things and whatever. Mm-hmm. You then start going into match day expenses. We probably spend on stewards and safety advisors probably over 280 grand a year for 23 games. You start going into paying for uh, who else? I mean, there's so much stuff in the expense column you wouldn't believe. Millions, millions and millions of pounds. You've got academies. You've got normal staff. Oh, our electricity bill is 200 grand a year for our stadium. Mm-hmm. Massive. You know, our rates, we pay on rates, I think, another 150 on top of the 500 grand rent. Yeah, so you're... Looking at almost a million in just having the stadium open. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. On top of your wage bill, on top of yeah. all the other bits and pieces. Um, Christ, I could pull up a spreadsheet right now to blow your mind away. You know, pre-season, if you go away, training camps, buying kit. You know, even with a kit deal, you still have to buy kit on top of the freebies you get. Do you um, do you buy new kit every game? No, we have like, I think we get like about 80 grand worth of free kit every year from, who's it, at the moment, Puma at the moment or whatever. And then anything over that, you pay yourself. Yeah. So I wouldn't say every game, possibly. We also have a kit man. We have all of that that goes with it. You know, we've got a chef at the training ground. Um, the chef's not, you know, cheap. You've got food for the players. We do charge the players for some of the food. 
mean, crikey, I mean, you've no idea. If I went through it next time when we do the second segment, I'll pull up some of the stuff and you can ask a few more questions. Yeah, it's interesting to just paint the picture that, you know, especially now when people will look and say, okay, you got a salary cap. So my salary cap's two and a half million. Well, the reality is, like you just said, two and a half million is claimed salary cap. Correct. So that's, you know, based on the rules of what you count as being salary cap versus not. And so, you know, you look and say, okay, well, you got six million turnover, two and a half million. You got all this money that we can now invest back in the club. And, you know, the reality is very different. Here's the reality. And here's the hard truth. If you want to break even and be self-sufficient, you can. That will put you the bottom of League One, middle of League Two. Mm-hmm. And you can get lucky and you can have a manager who's got friends in the Premier League and recruit five or six good loans. You can ping pong and float between and possibly do a right. You're not going to have major assets to sell. But you can definitely run a football club on the income that comes in outside of a pandemic. Yeah. If you got if you got five million turnover or four million turnover, could you run that club at four million with a million profit for yourself if you wanted to? Sure. There's a risk in the next two years you go non-league. Yeah. But there is, and that's where maybe some of the owners have come in and dropped down into non-league and maybe you know been been accused of not being very good owners have maybe run a, a club at a profit, earned some money. Mm-hmm. Can't say that's ever happened to me. It's not what we've done. Me and my partners, you know, unless we're selling players for mega dough and life-changing money in the championship, bar maybe the odd petrol receipt and a few bits and pieces, yeah, I mean, trust me, the club's losing money every year, you know. So, like I said, there has to be a plan in place to be fully self-sufficient. Yeah. The self-sufficient I've just spoken about is doing it the really cheap way where you're basically draining the club and trying to get paid. You want to grow into that. You want to invest to grow into it. Correct. And maybe maybe Crew's a great example to do, do it the right way who generate through their academy, who invest in their academy, who probably run a really prudent ship, who probably, I don't know, if the owners put money in. It feels like they're an anomaly, though, you know, because they've been forever known of having that and nobody's really replicated it. Quite potentially, yes, absolutely. You're right. You know, there are other cases out there. Who else? I mean, look, I can show you five good clubs run really well. I can show you yeah. five clubs run fucking terribly. Um, there's a bit of a mix. But the one thing the pandemic will do is everyone has to tighten their belts. The salary cap's going to help bring things in line. Um, the other thing we're all fighting at the moment is everywhere asking all our suppliers to take cuts. We're mm-hmm. we're trying to cut costs. We're trying to not cut corners. We're trying to what can we lose? What can we keep? What yeah. what have we got to do to get through it? Do we lose employees? Do we get people to pay pay cuts? We don't want to lose employees. You know what I mean? But this government, who's doing it to every other business and industry, are doing it to our industry. So it's making it really really difficult. So my last question, really, before we wrap up, is around. Um, you mentioned stadium, and you talked about half a million in stadium rent. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of ownership versus renting? Because I think that for a lot of teams that don't own their stadium, there's this idea that well, if we owned our stadium, then the world would be great. Uh, you know that there's something that's negative about renting your stadium, uh, and that's certainly how people at City, like we rent our stadium. And it's been a big like bugbear of, oh, well, that means we've got to pay all this rent up front. It means the money's not available for budgets. And yes, but maybe it's excuse. I don't know. So I just love your perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, if we if we paid 10 grand a year, peppercorn rent on our stadium, I'd be delighted not to own it. Yeah. But the reality is I never got that lucky. When I first came in, the guy who had it rented it to Barry Fry for like 70 grand a year. That went up to 250 the minute I came in. Mm-hmm. Then accounts for bought it and it nearly doubled. And it's just been such a, a ball ache. And I guess the logic would be if we buy the stadium, i.e. me, my partners and whatever else buy the stadium and do, and that's something my partners want to do, instead of wasting dead money every year on, on, on just rent, it's an asset of, of ours. It's something that we can invest in the stadium knowing that we own it. And if we get to move or we have to move and the covenant comes with us, 
then that's an asset that helps us move. Yeah. But if Bradford are paying less than 100 grand a year for a rent on a stadium, they don't need to own it yeah. unless they're going to move into a new purpose-built MK Don's type stadium with a wrap around it, which is going to bring revenue in, and money in. and yeah. uh, We're more likely in the realm of what you are. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's a ball egg. I know Oxford as well pay a fortune in rent and they don't get the revenue and match day and all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There are certain deals that are really horrible. And then when I was studying it and realized I'm overpaying in rent to our local authority, and, and again, please no one print that and get, get me in a row with the local authority. I'm not trying to dig them out because they bought a stadium and did it also to make sure the club was still, you know, still a place to play. When I started going around the house and going through the leagues, League Two, League One, the champ, we had one of the worst rental deals in, in you know, for, for renting a stadium. There's so many mm -hmm. clubs who pay less than a hundred grand a year. Yeah. And the local authority like makes it really easy for them. And um, you know, unfortunately we had to enter into a different agreement, otherwise the council couldn't have bought the stadium. So mm -hmm. look, there are advantages to owning and there's disadvantages to owning, and it all depends on what your lease is. And like I said, if you're going down the route of a new stadium with a wrap and it's industrial and you can bring money and revenue in and there's some houses like Brentford and, you know, you can become self-sufficient quicker, great. That's a great way then to own. A lot of the time, the club won't own the stadium. It'll be the private owners who own the stadium because they're raising the money. If we're getting a mortgage, we can't do it through the club, so we've got to do it through us, hence why we own the stadium. So yeah. people don't like that separation. They get anxiety about the separation. But that's why you have a covenant which protects the football club and the stadium. As long as the covenant's there, until possibly if you move the stadium to a new stadium, the covenant will go with it and the club still stays in the city. So, you know, we've got all these aspirations of doing it. But it's an interesting point. So you're saying like a lot of times the club actually on their own financial footing can't get the financing needed to be able to but to build the stadium. So you need the only way you can get the financing is doing it. So essentially is putting yourself as owners um, at risk because it's Correct. you're making personal guarantees. So right, so we're, if we're buying a stadium, we're, we're, if, we're, if we're going down the private route of raising finance, we're dealing with private investors. So that's on us and that's on, obviously, we use the stadium <laughs> like you would as a bank as collateral, but we're also co-signing. And um, they're not interested in the club co-signing because clubs can go into administration, they can fold, they can whatever. Nobody wants to lend football clubs money unless you've got a player that you're factoring money on. So a lot of times fans will kick up and go, oh, you know, you, you, you know the, the club's not going to own the stadium. It's not as easy as that. You know what I mean? And, and whatever. And, and, and I don't want to commit millions of my money straight into a stadium when I can go and borrow the money. Do you know what I mean? So, And the mortgage we can borrow at's a lot less than the rent. Yeah. And yeah. also, we can do a lot more with our stadium when we own it. And if we had to, if we're staying there, we weren't going to a new stadium. We could refurb. We could do a few little mm -hmm. bits and pieces, but it's ours. So there's all those different advantages, disadvantages. I guess there's no perfect answer to it. It depends on the given situation for that club. And we can probably talk about some examples in the future of certain clubs, maybe even the Bradford one. Yeah. But it's been a ball ache and it's a lot of dead money when you're just renting. All right. Well, I know that um, we're we're running long today because we've got a lot to talk about. So I want us to start wrapping up. Um, I want to um, thank everybody for listening over the last few months. You know, we're continuing to uh, to keep going with the pod next year. We are going to take a, a week off for Christmas. Where will we be? January the 6th, Wednesday, January the 6th will be when we're back. Um, I actually just want to mention that we will have details. We've teased this a little bit about the uh, business pod and membership community surrounding it. So definitely watch this space as we get all that up and running. And finally, I just want to extend a thanks as well to uh, Henry Hewitt and to Rob Zappolo, who have actually been joining the team, supporting the editing, the production, promotion, doing an awful lot of the work behind the scenes. Look, we need you, uh, if, as listeners, if you enjoy listening to the pod, 
the biggest thing you can do for us is always leave new comments and great comments on, on different formats, but also share the pod. Share it on social media. Share it on football forums you might be on. You know, the more people that listen, the better it is for us because it's not about the money. It's about making sure people are interested in it. And we've done we've done really well, but we'd like to do a lot better. And, you know, that's our target next year is, is to treble, if not quadruple, the subscriber growth base. You know what I mean? And the business part will be interesting because that will give you a few lessons on life and business and making a few quid, losing a few quid. You know, all the, all the experience we've got in that. So that might be a little bit more down to individuals and the way you live your life and maybe you want to change the way you live your life so if you're interested in that we keep saying you know join that we've got a waiting list now we've got a good number on it the following email for the business pod is just send a note to us at uh, either go to the website which is hardtruthfootball.com slash contact and there's a contact form that actually comes straight straight to me or just contact at hardtruthfootball.com that email address also comes directly to me so to everyone out there who's listened this year and who's, who's enjoyed a happy Christmas, Merry Christmas, stay healthy and stay wealthy and, uh, you know, fat and happy because that's what we'll be eating indoors over Christmas. And to everyone who's worked on the podcast, including yourself, Phil, you've been a breath of fresh air. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And uh, nothing but love for you and the family over Christmas. Have a great time. And uh, yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone. All right, we'll be back. Have a great Christmas and New Year as, as much as you can. And um, see you in January. Cheerio. Cheerio.